welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. I'm happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to do to heal self and world at the same time. In this episode, we'll talk about what the wisdom traditions might recommend as essential to working with the medicines of our world, including psychedelics. And we can begin by acknowledging and thanking all the sincere people out there interested in working with the medicines of our world, including all the people already engaged in this work, deeply engaged. And we've brought up a few of the concerns that it seems we all need to address in relation to working with any of the medicines of our world, and we will bring up a few more. But none of that comes as a specific criticism of anything a specific person might be doing. We just want to end all self-deception and begin to see how we can truly dispel the pattern of insanity that has the whole community of life at risk and how we can maximize healing for self and world at the same time. So we can offer this contemplation in gratitude to everyone out there doing their best to heal self and world, and as part of that, wanting to learn how we can all further develop. It seems essential to recognize the level of trauma, grief, injustice, inequality, and toxicity in our current context. In a way, we all have to ask unprecedented questions as we work with the medicines of our world. Even with a traditional medicine, we now find a very altered context. And we find ethical, metaphysical, ontological, epistemological, and aesthetic questions arising now that may never have arisen in, say, an indigenous context. Now, those are fancy words, metaphysical, ontological, all that mumbo-jumbo. It's just a fancy way of saying that we have to think a lot about ethics, the nature of reality, our obligations to the very being of the world, our obligations to sacredness, our standards of knowledge, and our practices of knowing, and also our sense of beauty and grace. We have to think all of that. And and questions will arise in our context that might not have ever arisen before. We also have to see that this degraded context affects meaning and experience. The degradation of ecologies and the loss of species has gone together with the degradation of meaning and purpose and the loss of languages and cultures and the possible extinction, or at least endangerment, of certain kinds of experience. So just as we're seeing a degradation of ecologies, we're seeing a degradation of experience. Like everything else in our cosmos, psychedelic medicines, as one example of the medicines of our world, they come to us totally interwoven, and not existing in and of themselves. Their meaning Their purpose, their implications, and their teachings depend on us and on larger ecologies of mind. The need for meaning and purpose itself presents an immediate problem. 
because we can then try to use the medicines of the world to get ground under our feet, to give ourselves something to do, a purpose, a meaning, to give ourselves pleasant or even unpleasant experiences that flatter the ego, or at least allow the ego to hold on in some way. And all of that needs reflection. And we most certainly cannot provide a complete and comprehensive philosopher's guide to psychedelic practice or to the practice of any kind of medicine. But we can try and cover some of the key issues. And we need to begin with some broad strokes, so we'll have to agree to stick with it a little as an image starts to come through. We might have to practice some patience because we have to be able to zoom out and rethink because so much is altered in our context, and our context has so many challenges. It's, it's quite troubled in many ways. And so then eventually we'll be able to talk about things like the ethics of consciousness. And that might seem like an unfamiliar term, but the medicines of our world invite us to consider the ethics of consciousness for a variety of reasons that I think you'll find as fascinating as I do, though it might take us a little while to even get to that. And then we'll have to go beyond that too. Now, in our last contemplation, we reflected on the ways in which Buddhist philosophy helps us to realize that we ourselves are the medicine we seek, and that we are the medicine for the world as well. And we can follow a path to becoming the medicine for all beings. And in order to do that, we have to find out the most important thing for medicine work. And then right away we discover the relevance of the wisdom traditions of the world, because after all, how could there be a most important thing for medicine work, which is not the same most important thing as the rest of our lives? The most important thing for medicine work, working with any kind of medicine, has to be the most important thing in life. And it has to be in attunement with the nature of self and reality. And the wisdom traditions, that's what they focus on. That's their whole reason for being. The true nature of self and reality and the most important thing in life. And the problem is the wisdom traditions agree that no one can tell us the most important thing in life. And they agree that we first need to admit we really don't know the most important thing, not fully and deeply, or else we'd be free. We wouldn't have any problems. If the most important thing could be told, we all would have heard it by now. Maybe we would hear it from birth, or maybe we would receive it inside a gold-leafed fortune cookie when we turn 16. And we would have let this most important thing, guide us unerringly for our, the whole of our lives. If we got it in our gold leaf fortune cookie at 16, and then from that moment on, we were guided by the most important thing. But it doesn't work that way. Not only can no one tell us the most important things, but we also have to face the fact that we are fallible beings, caught up in a good deal of delusion and suffering. Well, since no one can tell us the most important thing, we have to ask, what is the most important thing for finding out the most important thing? Now, that's a basic question for getting started with any medicine and with our life in general, seen from a spiritual perspective. And there, too, we find some challenges because people differ 
And thus the spiritual traditions, the wisdom traditions around the world, they have different teachings for different people. They have a wide range of stories, concepts, practices, ceremonies, and so on for the wide range of human experience, which includes different ecologies, different landscapes and languages, and also different temperaments within a particular ecology. We see variety both across landscapes and cultures and also within the microclimates of a particular culture. So we can detect differences between certain ways of life in a certain little area, say in China, between that area and a certain other area, maybe in Ireland somewhere, we see, wow, there are a lot of differences between the practices of life there. But then even within those two places, we could go into that little ecology in China and we find that the people are different. They're not all exactly the same. And we might find as much variation amongst those people in that little ecology in China, we might find as much variation just there as we did between the place in Ireland and the place in China. So in general, we we can say that we very much need a full-spectrum spirituality, something that includes the varied possibilities and potentials within each of us and amongst all of us, across these cultures and ecologies and within them. Now that does not mean we can treat our tradition or the traditions of other cultures like a spiritual buffet. Unfortunately, that's part of the the contemporary context, especially in the dominant culture, but it's also an old problem. We didn't just invent this. We could say it's an old problem that now has modern technology to strengthen it, to give it it feedback, and to feed it, to nourish it, really. And we might put it this way, that in the dominant culture, everything has become like Amazon.com for us. And indeed... It's not that everything became like Amazon.com. Amazon.com just followed the lead of the dominant culture. It just thinks in step with the dominant culture. That's why it became such a wealthy corporation. There was no major innovation in getting people to spend money by promising that they can just sit at home, choose from a huge range of material objects, and then merely by clicking a button, we can have these things brought right to our door in a day or a few days, that's no, there's no innovation. I mean, we don't think that Jeff Bezos is anything like Mozart, do we? Or anything like Einstein. He just thought in step with the dominant culture. And our spiritual life has become like this too, because the dominant culture co-ops it. It, it seduces us into its rhythms. And so we go online, we look at customer reviews for spiritual paths. And we start ordering whatever we want, all kinds of things. Books, audio programs, online courses, tropical retreats, ayahuasca vacations, and more. When we go to this kind of spiritual buffet, or treat the wisdom traditions of the world like a spiritual buffet, and we might be doing it respectfully. It's not to say that we're crass about it. We might be quite sincere. It's just that this is the pattern. And so our ego even if we don't want to admit it or even if we don't like it, our ego starts grabbing at all the spiritual ice cream, all the spiritual chocolate, all the spiritual cake and candy that it can get its hands on. And it avoids all the spiritual kale, all the spiritual shard, the spiritual grapefruit, and other nutrient-dense foods for the soul, most of which we can't actually get our hands on at all. They're not material objects. That's part of what spiritual materialism means. Sometimes when we come across a bunch of spiritual kale, 
We'll take the smallest leaf we can find and then drown it in sugary sauce so that it actually becomes unhealthy to eat. And that won't necessarily seem obvious to us. It's not that we can tell that's what we're doing. We don't consciously say, oh, there's a spiritual teaching. Oh, that looks like a lot. Let me just take a small bit of it and then, you know, sugar it up. We don't think that. We just are approaching the practice and we do certain things and this is the underlying habit energy that drives it. Our spiritual consumption can become tremendously subtle and it involves unconscious elements. If we had no unconscious, then we'd have fewer problems, but we'd also have fewer potentials. And spiritual materialism, as a term, means that we will take the most powerful medicine in the world and turn it into poison. Instead of healing, transformative, and liberating insight, we will mainly perpetuate the pattern of insanity. We won't, might not know at all that we're doing it. Maybe we know a little bit. I hesitated there because it could be partly conscious, but it might be quite unconscious. And the way it works best is that we, we convince ourselves and others that we're doing everything we can to not only heal, but to become liberated, to become truly free and wise and so on. But in fact, something is still holding on. So the most important thing for finding out the most important thing is to work with a holistic philosophy of life that can help us cut through all that spiritual materialism and can empower us to do the kind of work that will heal and nourish and liberate us and the world at the same time. Okay, now there's a trick here because I just used the word holistic, holistic philosophy of life. And I recognize that we're going to have to recover that term because we don't really know what that means, what that phrase means. In a certain sense, maybe we do, in another sense, we don't. And then, on the other hand, I also recognize that it might be really valuable to explain why I, as a philosopher, have so much interest and care for what is happening with the medicines of the world, particularly psychedelic medicines. But why, why would I even bother with this particular topic? And that seems like a worthwhile thing to touch on. Even though I didn't initially think we were going to start with either of those two topics, I thought we were going to maybe look um, at something else first. But this seems really important, actually. So maybe we could say this for our contemplation right now, that one way to frame some of this whole topic would involve seeing a significant current in the history of dominant culture philosophy as a response to the limitations, including the spiritual materialisms, of culture-wide psychedelic use. Now, that was a funny thing for, for us to bring to mind. Let's consider it one more time. If we look at the history of philosophy in the dominant culture, going back to the ancient Greeks, we can read a significant current of that history as a response, at least initially, to the limitations of culture-wide psychedelic use. So that's a funny thing to suggest. And so if that's true, that means our psychedelic renaissance might actually be a renaissance. Because I, I feel a little bit that we're having something like a psychedelic re- renaissance. You know, we have 
uh, large-scale studies going on. There's a wide-scale use. People are using psychedelics uh, more broadly. And we have legal research and so on. It's quite a shift. And many of us know that the meaning of renaissance is literally rebirth. Renaissance. Renaissance. Rebirth. But the period of dominant culture history we describe as the Renaissance, that period of history, the Renaissance period, that meant a rebirth of something very particular. Namely, the rebirth of the philosophical way of life of ancient Greece. So when we talk about a Renaissance person, and when we talk about, say, a psychedelic Renaissance or any kind of Renaissance, we may have forgotten what this really signified during that period of time in our history. By the 1400s, many people in the dominant culture had kind of forgotten the ancient Greek roots of their own experience of life. And maybe in, in that time, say the 1300s, up to the, into the 1400s, most people thought of themselves as Christians first and foremost. But Greek thought shaped the course of the development of the whole dominant culture in many ways. And so it wasn't so simple, even if people may not have realized that. Then when Constantinople fell, Greek scholars, they left and they went to Europe. And that was part of initiating the Renaissance. I think some scholars would still say that was the beginning. Maybe there's debate because history is always very nuanced and scholars can dig all kinds of things up and tell a variety of stories. But that's not a ridiculous suggestion that the renaissance of the dominant culture happened because of the return of Greece, the return of Greek thinking. Not only Byzantine Greeks who were coming from Constantinople, but also Arabic scholars had preserved Greek philosophy that was not so so familiar to people. And renaissance thinkers felt inspired to both return to the genius of ancient Greek culture, and also to try and surpass the Greeks, to go beyond it. But that hasn't worked out. Unfortunately, the dominant culture chose knowledge obtained by science, what we call science, narrowly defined, knowledge obtained by science and put to use for economics and politics. And the culture gave up on wisdom obtained by a holistic philosophy of life and put to use for the benefit of all beings. And that was a terrible choice, and we now face the consequences of it. Now, you can go back and listen to that again, but I, I feel like I want to say that again, if I could get it right. The dominant culture chose knowledge obtained by science and, let's say, technology and put to use for economics and politics. It chose that over wisdom obtained by a holistic philosophy of life and put to use for the benefit of all beings. Let's see if we can get some clarity, or at least touch one way of understanding how this relates to us today, and how, in particular, it relates to what we could call the potential psychedelic renaissance of today. Now, it seems to me that still the undisputed icon of ancient Greek philosophy is Socrates, with Plato coming right behind him. Now, of course, there are other figures. I really love them. 
Many people love Heraclitus. We only have fragments. Epicurus was a kind of Western Buddha for sure. We love the Stoics these days. That's gotten popular. But even for the Stoics, Socrates was an icon. And it seems particularly appropriate because we, what we know about Socrates is that he stood up to the structures of power of his time and he was killed for challenging his culture's ignorance and injustice. He teaches us by his life example that we have to become willing to risk everything for the sake of wisdom, love, and beauty. Then Plato learned from Socrates. Originally, actually, Plato seems to have wanted to become an artist. It's my understanding, it's what I was taught when I learned about Plato, that he might have become a great playwright like Euripides or Sophocles, and he had the genius to do that, clearly. But Plato had an inclination for what we now refer to as spirituality or philosophy. And he is the one who gives us the word philosophy, which literally means love wisdom. He gave us that term to remind us that the spiritual life involves a path of wisdom and love. Beauty is always implicated there too, but it would have been a mouthful to put all that together. So he just called it love wisdom, which is wonderful. As he pursued the path of love wisdom, Plato seems to have agreed with Socrates that the artists of ancient Greece couldn't save the culture, nor could psychedelics. Now that's a funny thought. Can psychedelics save a culture? Can psychedelics heal a culture? And why would Plato and Socrates have an opinion on it? Well, because they could think about it on the basis of what seems to be culture-wide use of psychedelics. It seems to have had an enormously important place in ancient Greek culture in the form of the Eleusinian mysteries and possibly other mysteries, which some scholars argue involve psychedelic experience. So this would have been a really big deal because the Eleusinian mysteries were a pan-Hellenic ceremony. And pan-Hellenic in the broadest sense, that means pan-Hellenic, the Hellenes are the Greeks, and it it meant that any not only any greek but anybody who could speak greek you didn't even have to be greek and it didn't matter if you were free or a slave if you were male or female it didn't matter what city state you were from it didn't matter if you were from sparta or thebes or athens if you wanted to participate and you spoke greek then that's fine you had to speak greek to understand the mysteries but you also had to be innocent of murder. You couldn't participate if you had that kind of karma, if you had killed somebody, murdered somebody. Other than that, you could enter the mysteries as long as you spoke Greek. And we can get at some of the importance of these mysteries by considering the response of an esteemed political official of the Roman Empire, the response of this political official to the emperor's ban on nighttime ceremonies. Now, that would have effectively banned the Eleusinian Mysteries, even though uh, my understanding is that wasn't in the edict. It was just a ban on all nocturnal or nighttime ceremonies. And the Eleusinian Mysteries, the, the crucial part of them, happened at night. might have even been under new moon, so it was really, really dark. And so that would have been the end of the Mysteries. And this high-ranking official named uh, Vedius Agorius Praetextatus, 
Try saying that <laughs> ten times. He declared, according to the Greek historian Zosimos, that this law, quote, would make the life of the Greeks unlivable if they were prevented from properly observing the most sacred mysteries which hold the whole human race together, end quote. So he allowed the initiations, the mysteries, to go on, ignoring the order of the Roman emperor, who at that time was Valentinian. So this is an official ignoring, an edict from the emperor, because of this power of the mysteries. That without them, life would be unlivable because the mysteries held the whole human race together. And in fact, the whole world. It's kind of staggering. Now, based on this, we can appreciate that Plato and Socrates may both have participated in the mysteries. It was a very common thing. Every Greek could participate, and people experienced it as something profound. So very likely, if Plato and Socrates participated, they would too. And Plato looked at this culture-wide engagement with psychedelic experience, and he began to wonder why everyone wasn't wiser, why the culture wasn't more just, peaceful, and whole. And we're considering Plato for a variety of reasons, not least of which because of how the wisdom traditions of the dominant culture can help us work with psychedelics today. So we, we touched on how much Buddhist philosophy could teach us, but our own dominant culture, wisdom traditions, also have much to teach us. And it's important to look to the ancient Greeks and to understand the meaning of Renaissance and to see if maybe we can have a Renaissance now. To be born again. And we're being only slightly speculative with some of this, what Plato might have thought or what he might have experienced. Some things we can establish pretty well with scholarship, not everything. But it's not super controversial to read Plato as a mystic. My colleagues in the university typically don't do that. They analyze his texts the way you would analyze Kant. It's, I think, a mistake. Because as a mystic, Plato was definitely not a professor of philosophy. He was a philosopher. And if we take him seriously, if we can trust the letters to be his, we have to believe he didn't write his texts to be analyzed, nor did he put the real teachings in them. Now, as a philosopher who has written texts to be analyzed, and also as one who's written texts not really to be analyzed in that same manner, I know the difference. And we can get some scholarly help on this point. I know this might seem arcane, but it's really important what we're talking about is how we lost philosophy and what it would mean to have a renaissance and what this story tells us about what we might need, what would be most important in working with the medicines of our world, including psychedelics. It's really important to think about someone who might have been in a culture where culture-wide psychedelic use was present. And what problems did he find with that? Now, we're not going to get into the scholarship, but I will mention Pierre Adot, the French scholar who 
really showed us that we don't read the ancient Greeks the way the ancient Greeks intended themselves to be read. We aren't practicing philosophy as they understood it. Ado demonstrates this really carefully. And one of his good, good books on this is Philosophy as a Way of Life, or What is Ancient Philosophy? That's a good, it's a good question. What is ancient philosophy? We just think it's some old stuff. It's not that. Among other things, Plato didn't write his dialogues as text for analysis as we currently do it. Rather, he seems to have written them as part of a curriculum to guide people through practicing philosophy as a way of life, a way of life for becoming truly wise people walking a path of love, walking a path of wisdom, walking a path of grace and beauty. That's what Plato intended. We certainly know we can read Plato as a genius, an incredible genius. But he seems to have been a mystic, not an ordinary professor of philosophy. He seems to have been a person very committed to philosophy as a transformative and healing practice a way to heal our soul and the soul of the culture at the same time. And Plato looks around at his culture and he knows how significant the mysteries are in his culture. He, he knows that large numbers of people have been initiated into a potentially powerful mystical experience. Now these people might prepare for up to 18 months in order to experience initiation into these mysteries, which unfolded over the course of nine days. That's a serious engagement. And Plato looks at his culture, both his own city-state of Athens and probably the larger Pan-Hellenic culture, and he realizes that the culture and its people don't seem to be filled with peace and well-being. He realizes the culture isn't run by wise elders. It's not run by wise people at all. He probably realizes it's not even run by adults, but by juveniles effectively accepted as adults when they aren't. And he sees the way the youth get educated. And so much of what he sees around him actually stands in tension, in, in, almost in contradiction to the incredible culture itself, some, at least some of its features, including maybe the mysteries. And we still study that culture today. We still revere the literature, architecture, and other arts of ancient Greece. And in some sense, we also have the same fascination with psychedelic mysteries. So Plato looks at the psychedelic scene and the art scene, the larger culture, and he knows that this is the same culture that killed his teacher, Socrates. His culture killed the most unique person he had ever known, and maybe one of the most unique people Greek culture had ever known. Socrates was passionately committed to truth, to serving sacredness, to walking a path of wisdom, love, and beauty, and they killed him. He was dedicated to trying to help the culture, trying to help the youth, trying to heal the mess he saw his culture in. And Plato is faced with having to accept the fact that his fellow citizens, the same people who produced Sophocles and Aeschylus and the same people who participated in those 
mysteries that those people had killed this extraordinarily ethical and wise person. If the Athenians had executed anyone unjustly, we should obviously deplore it. But we're touching something that has a, a little extra dose of evil lurking in it. It would be as if someone killed the Dalai Lama after you know, putting him on a humiliating trial, saying that he was uh, corrupting the youth of the United States and that he was some heretic and communist. Even if we're not Tibetan, he seems like a really nice guy. And we can tell he's invested in the well-being of others. And we would find it just terrible if the, uh, the, the large number of people all participated in putting him on a, a fake trial for corrupting the youth of America and then killed him for it. We could also compare it to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King looked up to Socrates as a model That's how profound an impact Socrates had on the dominant culture, that someone like Dr. King look up to him. Like Dr. King, Socrates stood up to power. We said that already, but it's worth saying again. It's worth saying again that he dedicated himself to helping his fellow human beings and his culture, that he dedicated himself to this path of wisdom, love, and beauty. And he stood up to wealthy and powerful people who really thought they knew so much. And he showed them that they didn't know. It wasn't that he had an opinion that differed from theirs. He was able to show them that they did not know what they were talking about. And rather than say, well, gee, Socrates, this is really important what you're showing me here. You you showed me that I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I should stop what I'm doing and learn and think. But instead, they killed him. And we're in the same context. I know we're not going to kill the Dalai Lama, but we're really in the same context ultimately. And certainly, the same basic problem of people doing all kinds of things, acting like they know what they're doing, but then they don't really. And even those of us interested working with the medicines of the world, we think we know sometimes when we don't. And it's not just that we say, well, I think I know, but we behave as if we know, because the behavior, the action we're taking, depends on knowing some kind of important thing in some cases, and we kind of behave like we know it. I mean, how many people working with psychedelics think they could sit across from Socrates and tell him what's what about the nature of reality and convince him that they know what they're talking about? How many of us are so sure that Socrates could never stop us in our tracks? He could never ask us a question that left us replying, well, Socrates, I guess I don't know. Now, we might try to wave it off and hide behind the numinous, hide behind the ineffability of our psychedelic experience or whatever kind of experience we have. We like to do that. That's one of the ways that we're avoiding critical thinking, is that we start saying we have to go from the head to the heart, which means we're just going to abandon clear thinking. In some cases, it's really what it ultimately means. We're hiding behind experience. And we'll get to a little bit more detail on that, but we're just looking at this basic thing, 
And when it comes to the ineffable, Socrates, like most wise teachers, knew the difference between a wise or noble silence on the one hand and somebody who just doesn't know what they're talking about on the other. And so he wouldn't have been put off our trail by our hiding behind the ineffable or whatever it might be. So in any case, we're just looking at this image. Here it is. Plato is looking all... He's looking at all this and inquiring deeply into it. And realizing that something has to have gone wrong with the way human beings in the dominant culture make and relate with profound works of art. On the one hand, so all the great art that was being produced in his culture, he realized, well, something's going wrong. The art is beautiful, yet it's not making us better people. The artists don't seem to have a whole lot of wisdom, and people who interact with the, these, the, these beautiful buildings and plays and all the rest, they don't seem to become wiser, more loving, more beautiful people. Maybe a little bit here and there, but overall this is not working out. And he's also thinking, well, something also has to be going wrong with the way we, we relate to initiatory experience, the way we relate with the mysteries And we're talking about huge numbers of, of Greeks, thousands of people a year, maybe two, 3,000 people might go through an initiation in any given year. And whether or not we can, there is some debate. Some people might say, well, there weren't psychedelics. Other people have tried very hard to show the evidence that there likely were psychedelics involved in these mysteries. They were pretty profound. And, and so we have to not fall into the trap that we've mentioned before to, of attributing the experience to an external agent because we don't think the mind is capable of it. So we can say the experience was psychedelic whether it had some medicine in it or not that we would conventionally refer to as psychedelic. So maybe th there was a drink that people had, a psychedelic drink that had, a, we would say, an, an agent in it that would trigger a psychedelic experience, but maybe not. It's not necessary for these people to who have basically had psychedelic experience. It's not necessary that they had some version of LSD to make it happen. That's just irrelevant in a way. But it certainly is possible, and if that's more convincing for us, well, look at the evidence. It's quite possible that they were drinking a psychedelic brew. And if that's the case, one way or another, if we can see this experience as psychedelic, then psychedelic experience was far more widespread in ancient Greece than in 21st century Turtle Island. That is the, one of the main points here to see. And the mysteries created a powerful experience that made Plato stop. Because for sure he knew that uh, Stopping was important when, when you encountered something like this kind of puzzle, you know. Socrates wanted us to just stop and become susceptible to divine inspiration, become susceptible to wisdom, love, and beauty. That requires stopping what we're doing and getting quiet. And so Plato probably internally had a big stop. He's looking, and it might have just even been triggered by the encounter with Socrates, the encounter with these mysteries. Maybe it was everything together. Maybe it was just the death of Socrates when they finally killed him. Maybe there were many stops for Plato, and he just looked and saw, wow, this is really wild. 
how do I how do I make sense of all these elements here? He's looking at Socrates and he sees that Socrates not only per- participated maybe the, in the Eleusinian mysteries, but he was initiated into the miracle of instruction. So his his initiation was not just the Eleusinian mysteries, but he de- describes in one of Plato's dialogues another initiation that he was in. And we can recall here our earlier contemplation of, of, where we talked about Buddha's view about miracles. And in fact, we were just in a way, touching on it a moment ago, he recognized different kinds of miracles. And he said, well, there are, um, of course, psychic and telepathic miracles, but that's not where it's at. And Buddha said the real miracle is instruction in the practice of love wisdom, the practice of philosophy as a way of life. And he said that people in general won't believe that the practice of philosophy can produce the miracles that it produces. And they will want to attribute those miracles to some external agent. So we don't want to believe that the practice of philosophy can be as powerful as uh, as LSD or something like that, and yet that's what these traditions are teaching. And Plato would have seen this firsthand, because whatever happened in the Eleusinian Mysteries, if it was some kind of LSD concoction, but of course that's the synthetic thing, but if it was like a, a, a version of that, uh, then Plato would would have known that aspect of psychedelic experience, but he could see that Socrates was able to experience altered states of consciousness. So th- that's described, that sometimes Socrates kind of goes into a meditative state, and he's in an altered state of consciousness. He also seemed to be immune to cold, immune to fear, never drunk. He could drink uh, wine, and ne- no one ever saw him drunk. Seemed to be immune to tiredness. He did sleep. But at the end of the symposium, everybody, you know, is all passed out and they're drunk and they're unconscious. And Socrates is fresh as a daisy and he goes off and starts his day because the sun has come up. So he was up all night drinking and he just goes on about his day like nothing happened. He was open to divine inspiration and being guided by mysteries so that he knew the right thing to do. Socrates always said, well, I don't know. He said, I'm not wise, but he still knew. He knew how to listen to the divine voice in him, and he said it it guided him so that he never did anything unjust. And Plato knew that Socrates had achieved his uniqueness through the miracle of instruction, primarily. He was initiated by a priestess into the mysteries of love. That's how we. That's part part of why we have the word love wisdom, because Socrates said this is a path of love. The path of wisdom is love. And so, taken all together, Plato understood that we do need initiation. We need direct experience of the mystery. A mystic is someone who's initiated, someone who's been given that direct experience of reality. And that reality is also mysterious. So that's why it's funny. We're initiated into the mysteries. The mystic is initiated into the mysteries because they they are experiencing it firsthand and they're experiencing that reality has an inconceivable quality. It remains transcendent, we could say, of our ordinary habitual ways of knowing. So we understand these mysteries in a way that goes beyond ordinary understanding but isn't merely irrational. And Plato seems to have understood that the mysteries had a good structure. There was something important about them and something important about the process of initiation. And he also understood that we had to realize a certain state of mind in order to realize the nature of reality. In other words, 
for certain kinds of insights. We cannot arrive at them unless we become the kind of person who can do so. Knowledge depends on the knower, and we have to become an exceptional knower in order to know exceptional things. Whatever the Eleusinian mysteries involved, whether they were facilitated by a substance that we would classify narrowly as a psychedelic, or they were just psychedelic because it was an initiatory space that was skillfully held, that process of being initiated helped people to become better knowers, at least for a moment or two, so that they could have that initiatory experience. But it didn't help enough. By itself, those initiations couldn't make people reliable, exceptional knowers. This is just to try to understand what might someone like Plato and Socrates have thought about their own culture and about these initiatory psychedelic experiences. And this maps onto the central suggestion that Rick Strassman makes in his book DMT and the Soul of Prophecy that we touched on in our interview together as well. Socrates believed that all the best things that human beings accomplish are basically like an act of grace. That it is divine madness that gives us all the best things that we have, a divine inspiration. And at the same time, there's some sense in, in most of the wisdom traditions that we can earn that grace. Even the religious ones will have that sense that we, if we practice our life the right way, then the grace will be granted. It's, it's quite reliable. We don't have to beg for it. We just practice in the right way and it's there. Many Christian and Islamic mystics taught that, uh, of course, uh, the prophetic capacities are bestowed by God, but they're bestowed because of the practice of life that the prophet engages. So we have to do our part. And Rick Strassman agrees with that. We talked about that. The ancient Hebrew prophets had to live a way of life that was virtuous and holy. And Buddha has this view that if we practice, then the miracles happen. It still might feel like an act of grace because of the holism of the cosmos. So there's a way in which it's still like an act of grace, but there's that word holism that we're going to have to talk about. But grace sort of indicates that it's not up to our ego. Our ego doesn't get to choose. Our ego isn't in control, but nevertheless, it's sort of what's going to happen. It's kind of like if we let go of something and there's no support under it, it's going to fall. And that's sort of what happens to us when we let go. We don't have any support under there, so to speak. And so when we let go, then the ego is going to drop out and inspiration is going to come in. Meister Eckhart sort of has this view that we evacuate the ego out of the soul, (laughs) roughly speaking, and that creates this space, a vacuum into which the divine immediately appears. So when the soul, uh, when the ego goes out of the soul, there's this vacuum effect that the divine immediately becomes present. So we have many varieties of this kind of idea of mystical experience, and Plato has his own image. He offers the path of love wisdom. And he offers it as an alternative to deal with the limitations and the spiritual materialisms 
of the psychedelics, the arts, and the wider culture of his time and place. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? That he's Because it was a school, and it seemed to have initiatory aspects to it. There are things we're, co- we're constantly told in the dialogues, well, we can't talk about this. And then in his letter, he says, well, the wisdom is not in the, te- in the texts, you can't read it there. And he goes in person to try to teach one of these tyrants, <laughs> these oligarchs. And so something there, there's some kind of initiatory experience, but he's trying to overcome the limitations because he sees culture-wide initiatory or, and possibly psychedelic experience, and he's saying, well, and then, they, and then they went and killed Socrates. What kind of culture is that? And he thinks the whole thing's crazy. He sees the injustice. He sees the breakdown of democracy. He sees the art scene, you know, and how marvelous it is, and yet he sees the suffering of individuals and the culture as a whole. And so he offers this medicine. He's saying this is the medicine that will heal the individual and the culture at the same time, and anyone can walk this path. And that's why he did go and try to find one of these oligarchs. Plato wanted to find people in power, because he shared the view that Confucius had, which was that if we could just find leaders who want to follow the path of love wisdom, if they, a leader who really wants to be in attunement with wisdom, you know, you would think, well, why would anybody want to be an ignorant leader? But no, it just turns out nobody wants to commit to wisdom and compassion and grace. But Plato and Confucius and probably other philosophers have thought, well, geez, if somebody in a position of power could change the society, and they could facilitate the healing of the culture. If you just find people in the right social positions, they could do so much to help the culture to heal, to help all the people in the culture to become what they are, to realize their fullest potential. And all of this is just getting at the vital importance, then, of our contemplation together. Socrates told the people of his culture that if they didn't get themselves and their culture on a good path, a path of wisdom, love, and beauty, then the culture would not long endure. That was his prophecy. And indeed, the culture did not long endure. Obviously, that involves a lot of complex history, a lot of factors. And a wise and just society doesn't simply become immune to any outside aggression. Nevertheless, at its zenith, an Athenian culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty might have gotten other Greek city-states to agree to some kind of lasting peace. Because a lot of the gamesmanship was just, if any particular city-state was getting too big and powerful, then the others got nervous and then there'd be a war. We tend to feel more competitive with ignorant people. You know, there's the aggression doesn't so easily arise with a wise person because they have transcended aggression. So then we're not going to have as much conflict and competition. We can have more cooperation. And we can sense that kind of presence. And when the Athenians sensed it in, within their culture, they killed it. And we find ourselves in a powerfully resonant situation. It's the whole point of talking about all of this. Just trying to convey a little bit where this comes through my lineage 
And how I as a philosopher look at this and think, oh my goodness, we're back again. The same problems that Socrates faced, we're facing them. We're having potentially a psychedelic renaissance and an explosion of interest in the self-help industrial complex. We are hungry, starving for the same kind of healing and transformation that Plato thought his culture needed. And people were hungry for it back then too because they would gather around Socrates and other philosophers. They wanted to know reality. They wanted the truth. They wanted the healing and the medicine of the path of love wisdom. And we too know some significant problems in this culture. We can't pretend they don't exist by talking about how great things are, pretending we have enlightenment now or other nonsense like that. The reason why we are going to be fooled by that is that the problems are in our blood. They're in our organs, in our minds and hearts. We know we've got plastic in our blood and in our lungs now. We have lead in our bones. We have rocket fuel and other toxins in our water, and so therefore we're drinking that. We know these things affect our bodies and minds and the bodies and minds of other beings. The dead zones in the ocean, we go on and on. And these toxins in our environment, they lead to cancer, they lead to other physical ailments, they lead to disturbances in our emotions and our thought, they can incline us to violence and stupidity. And we know that violence, the hot violence of mass shootings and the slow, cooler violence of toxicity and pollution. We know about the injustice and inequality. We know about all the bullshit jobs the crisis of meaning, the crisis of attention, the crisis of loneliness, the trauma, addiction, and all the rest. Now, we know about these things at least at a surface level or an intellectual way, even though we may also try to repress and suppress our knowing. You know, repress is that it stays unconscious because the filter keeps it from entering the conscious and suppress means it peaks up a little bit and then we push it back down. So we kind of know because we see it peaking up but then we push it down. That's suppression. And in the midst of all this, the prophecy I might offer, in line with my lineage and my ancestor Socrates, I might offer the prophecy that if we don't get ourselves on a path of wisdom, love, and beauty, then the dominant culture will not long endure. That would come with far greater consequence and tragedy than the fall of Socrates' culture because the dominant culture goes far beyond a city-state or a handful of city-states. The dominant culture has planetary impact. That's unprecedented. Human ignorance at a grossly obvious planetary scale. Socrates would weep. He just wanted to help end human ignorance And then it turned out that his cultural inheritors have mainly amplified human ignorance rather than healing it. If the dominant culture falls apart, organized human life as we've known it will come undone, very likely. Not that we won't recover again or start to get back on track. Maybe we'll be living like people did in the 17th century or something. 
We don't know what it'll mean if the dominant culture falls apart. We can safely suggest it will mean millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions of people, possibly more, possibly on the scale of billions, will suffer needlessly and possibly horrifically. In fact, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, possibly billions, of lives are really at stake, that people could die. And this has nothing to do with doom and gloom. This is just being really serious. We don't have to get reactive or panicky or depressed. It's not going to help. We need to be able to look clearly and touch the fullness of our situation. Because people are suffering right now. It's not like we have to wait. Oh, this could happen, but in the meantime, I can do whatever I want. No. Right now, what we're doing is creating the suffering of today and tomorrow. Or it will create the healing and liberation of today and tomorrow. And so it seems really important to think through the situation with the benefit of the wisdom traditions of the world, including the wisdom traditions within the dominant culture. And maybe we could think of Plato. What would he say to us? Maybe he'd say, well, go on, have your psychedelic renaissance, but this time, don't forsake love wisdom. Don't forsake a holistic philosophy of life. He'd be asking us to remember, to remember to take care of our soul, to remember what we are, to remember what our own traditions tell us. Remembering is integral to a spiritual life. And we need to remember that the original renaissance of the dominant culture's history signified an awakening of passion for wisdom, love, and beauty. It meant a rebirth of philosophy as a way of life, which means living in attunement with the sacred, living in attunement with wisdom, love, and beauty. It meant that we would try to walk a path of wisdom, love, and beauty. That's what Socrates and Plato wanted for us. And in order for us to have a genuine and helpful renaissance, whether psychedelics are part of that or not, because a psychedelic renaissance is that's already fragmented, we need a renaissance. You're not going to have a psychedelic renaissance and in the midst of chaos and think that's going to work out. That's already a violation of the principle of holism. And so if we're going to have a renaissance, those elements, the things that Socrates and Plato wished for us will have to come to the fore and not become suppressed again and abandoned again and then eventually repressed again so that they just fall into the unconscious. Because that made the first Renaissance basically a total disaster. We gave up on wisdom and we traded it for knowledge, as we indicated a little bit earlier. We realized that knowledge, in the narrow sense, that the sciences function with and that businesses function with, knowledge is easy to get. Instead of the passion demanded by a holistic philosophy of life, we said, forget all that. Let's just have science. That'll guide us. And we even thought we were doing a good thing because we thought we'd put it in contrast with superstition and all of this, but it was a grave error. Science, as we practice it in the dominant culture, cannot possibly guide us. It's totally insufficient, anemic, and dangerous. We know those dangers intimately. They have come as painful lessons we still seem to refuse to fully learn. Science has not merely contributed to the problems that we have. Science, as in the dominant culture, goes completely together with all the problems we have. It's not that the scientists are all innocent 
and they're just simply reporting to us what some bad politicians and corporations have done to the world. Not at all. We have to get clear on that. We couldn't have the world we have right now with all its mess and degradation. We couldn't have that without science. And yet we find ourselves ready to make the same mistake the dominant culture has made both historically and in an ongoing way. So historically we're pointing at this mistake as having happened in the Renaissance, but it's also like an ongoing thing that we have to continually repress this. If we think that we're all just going to take psychedelics and then science and technology will save the planet and the culture for us, that's not going to happen. Neither psychedelics nor science can save us. And I'm saying all this as part of talking about how we could work with them. I'm not rejecting them. I'm not saying no one should use the medicines of our world. We can work with them. We shouldn't use them, but we can work with them. And we have many kinds of medicine. Again, this applies, doesn't matter what your medicine. Your medicine is horse medicine, fine. Your medicine is singing bowls, that's fine. Massage, great. Whatever it is. But that medicine is not can't function as a fragment. And we're just trying to get at how we got here and think it through, looking deeply at the central error of the dominant culture, if we could speak metaphorically. And we could say that the first mistake we made was whatever mistake that led to their having to be Plato and Socrates as they appeared. That's how deep the problem is. By the time we get to Socrates, we already had some kind of major issue that Socrates was trying desperately to wrestle with and diagnose. And then Plato and Socrates warned us. They said, hey, this is not a good situation. We've got to heal this. But we ignored them. And then Greek culture sort of gets lost. People kept trying, of course, and there were streams that went from ancient Greek into the Hellenic, and then into the Roman period. But then it eventually kind of gets lost in the dominant culture. Along comes the Renaissance, and it becomes a chance for rebirth. We could be born-again children of Sophia, children of wisdom, children of love, children of beauty. Sophia's children born again, homo sapiens. Sapiens is Sophia, that's her, sapienza, that's her Latin name. We are her children. She's the divine aspect of wisdom, you could say. I mean, for those who come from the Hebraic tradition, Sophia appears in the Bible. She's either the feminine face of a non-dual divine, or she's the wisdom aspect. She is God's wisdom here at work in the world. She was here when everything came into being. Wisdom is in this world fully. And so we could have been born-again children of Sophia, but we missed that opportunity in the Renaissance. We got seduced by a narrow version of science, and we found out that it's just so much easier to kill a bird and dissect it. So much easier to do that and to find out how to listen to that bird and live well with her. How to understand the wisdom she expresses. That's more challenging. So easy to kill her and cut her open and make a diagram of what you see. And that's what we did with everything. So much easier to blow things up, cut them down, dissect them, employ them for instrumental human purposes. 
so much easier to do all that than to become a wise, compassionate, and beautiful person who knows how to listen to these beings all around us and live well in this world. A joyful person who knows how to participate in this world in a way that furthers the conditions of life. A person who feels thoroughly at home in the world and at peace with themselves and with others. Becoming that kind of person takes passion and perseverance and it's just a lot easier to blow things up. Of course, it only seems easier on the surface. The conquest style of consciousness seems easy because it seems like we can just take whatever we want. But it turns out we usually create more difficult situations. It's just a game of moving suffering around. The trouble is the path of love wisdom bothers the ego. Socrates and Plato proposed an entire path of life. Boring. That sounds hard. It does. I'm teasing, but you know, come on. It, it, it demands renouncing things the ego starts to crave and cling to. It's not renouncing things that we need. And it's not making life sucky. Renunciation always sounds like, oh, you're going to make life boring and awful. That's not what it means. It's just the ego is holding on to stuff and we don't get to wake up until it lets go. And love wisdom is just honest about that. In conquest consciousness, we focus on a path of accumulation. We grow our bank account, our social network, our title and position, our wealth and possessions. And Plato and Socrates emphasized the care of the soul. It's a path of care, not a path of acquisition or accumulation. Even that basic vision, just emphasizing that, that could transform our culture. We could get honest about our lives and realize that we need to embrace a care economy. So many people in our culture have the basic job of taking care of us, and, and unfortunately they have the job too of taking care of the fabricated human ecology. It's not a natural ecology. And Care is central. I, I've got one mug for tea and coffee. Naturally, it's a horse mug. And somebody made that mug. I didn't make it, unfortunately. Somebody made it. Most of the labor, though, that goes into that mug comes from my daily care of it. We wash and dry our teacups hundreds of times. So producing the mug arises as one facet of a much larger ecology, an ecology that depends on care. The energy of care pervades our lives because it belongs so intimately to the nature of our world. The world allows creativity and care to arise in total interwovenness, and human beings separate them. A wisdom culture functions on the basis of an economy of care. It places care in a central place. Because think of all the work that involves care, nursing and health care, teaching, agriculture. Well, in fact, we could stop right there because that's practically everything essential, isn't it? And those pr pr professions don't really produce goods in the ordinary sense, not even agriculture, because the, the, the wise farmer knows that they're just there to be the caretaker of the land. They can't actually grow the carrot. The carrot has to grow itself. They take care of the land. And once we get into a productive model of agriculture, well, you see what happens. We've got 60 harvests left, maybe less, if we don't regenerate the soil, right? So we have to take care of the soil. So the whole notion of a production 
economy, you know, and gross domestic product, all that. Our whole notions of economy in the dominant culture expresses nothing so much as the insanity of the culture. And then we take those concepts which do nothing but express our insanity and we make them the center of our activity. Then we go down a rabbit hole of delusion and we fancy that people on Wall Street produce wealth and that people in universities produce knowledge. It's nonsense. Those who take care to teach, those who engage in... Let's just... That example. What is teaching? What's taking care of souls? That's what Socrates said. That all he was trying to do was get people to, to, to care for their souls and to take care of each other. And so people who are teachers today, it's no different. Their job is to take care of souls and to empower people to take care of their own souls and to, to take care of the soul of the world. We're here to take care of the world together. And so when we fail to see that and also fail to practice it, the entire culture goes awry. Isn't that funny how we, we got onto the the whole economy, that we have to rethink the economy in order to have a, an actual renaissance, whether psychedelic or otherwise. That's just honesty. What we call the economy has become so cut off from the soul that it mainly stands as an obstacle to the demands of wisdom, love, and beauty. And you can see this because people have to work with the medicines of the world in the context of these economies, and it impacts them significantly. Sometimes people seem to be mainly driven in some cases, some of the decisions of, of some people appear to be driven by economic concerns and not only and exclusively concerns about how to work with the medicines. And then we talk about how, well, well, you know, there are these realities and we have to balance them. But what that has allowed the culture to do is force us to call something a reality that has nothing to do with reality. So now the word reality doesn't mean anything. When we say, well, the economic realities, but those aren't real. We made them up. And so it's not fair to talk about realities that aren't in attunement with actual reality. There's no attunement between our economy and ecological and spiritual realities and all that matters to how we work with the medicines of the world. It should stand out as a really serious symptom. Going back to Plato more Specifically, he meant this path of love wisdom as something that would heal and transform individuals while also establishing a just society. So that's part of, I think, how Dr. King realized. Of course, Plato was had some confusions of his own because he was trapped in his own context. But I, Dr. King realized this holism. Remember? And he starts to say, well, it's not just, it's not really racism. There's a whole bigger problem that's underneath that. And even today, we haven't quite got that message because we, we talk about structural racism and institutionalized racism in a way that doesn't necessarily receive all of the insights that Dr. King had into the holism. And I think we're diagnosing the problem the wrong way. And of course, all of that plays into these medicines, right? Because we have these, we do have structural oppression. Is it appropriate to focus on something that we want to call institutionalized racism? No, even if there are racist results of the problem that we have. That's not the deeper level. And at least we could, again, bring this spirit of what Plato was inviting into our contemporary practice so that we see our work as establishing a just society 
and establishing a just society goes totally together with establishing just human beings. Human beings who express in their behavior, in their thought, speech, and action, they express the nature of justice, the nature of peace, insight, wisdom, love, beauty. Now, all this sounds like a lot, I know. And Plato, like so many others in the wisdom traditions, he tells us that this requires initiation, renunciation, extensive learning and practice. And we're just trying to say all this, all these things that we're thinking about, oh my gosh, now we have to think about the economy? That doesn't even seem fair. Yeah, that's how crazy it's gotten. And it just sounds like a drag compared to the path of conquest, where we leave the whole pattern of insanity in place and we just try to pursue what we think are our own good intentions. And in general... And I know we're, we, we, in our own selves we might not think we're going this far, but in general, conquest consciousness gives us the sense that we can, we can have whatever we want and it doesn't matter how we're practicing our lives. So we could be any kind of crass person at all and still benefit from science, technology, knowledge, and data. And we can see this from the most obvious to the most subtle cases. Clearly, surveillance capitalism operates in an unethical manner and it benefits tremendously from science, technology, knowledge, and data. Predators of all kinds benefit from these things. And as we look with care, we can see how science, technology, knowledge, and data go completely together with injustice, aggression, inequality, and ecological degradation. So we're just trying to see this that this situation is quite complex. If everything is interwoven, in other words, why, why, why does the mandala look the way it is, the one that we're looking at right now? Wow, we were talking about ancient Greece and psychedelics and economics and racism, all this stuff, really? Yeah, because that's the context. It's always interwoven, and our situation has gotten really messy. How do we face all this? Can we experience a renaissance? Can we experience not just a narrow psychedelic renaissance, which means lots more people take psychedelics, that's not a renaissance. Can we remember that the roots of the dominant culture go back to something, that there is wisdom somewhere? Can we remember that the roots of our culture go back to this call to return to our soul and take care of our soul, to take care of each other and the world that we share? That's the Socratic call. That's what all this is about, is that really it's the same mess. It hasn't changed, but the consequences of getting it wrong this time are far more intense. And we're thinking through all this because I think a lot of people today might agree with the spirit of of some of what we're considering. I think maybe a lot of people, especially if you're listening to this, probably because you have some experience or curiosity about psychedelics, it's very likely that this, at least the spirit of a, of a lot of things that we've considered, you would assent to. You say, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. Fine. That doesn't mean that enough of us will put in the work to think through what Plato and Socrates and the other wisdom teachers of the world ask of us. And what these teachers need to tell us matters so much at this critical moment. And we can use all kinds of nice words that make it sound like we know all of this. We can use words like mindset, healing, transformation, revolution, compassion, mindfulness, justice, inclusiveness, and we can say all kinds of good things. It doesn't mean that we would be doing the work that the wisdom traditions say we need to do. And some of it we just don't want to hear. 
If it inconveniences our agenda, we don't really want to hear about it. And it's a tricky situation because we see that there's a problem and then we go to try to fix it. And this is just to say, wait, but if you try to fix it in a way that's not in accord with what these traditions have taught us, they're telling us it's going to create more trouble. Oh, really? Yeah. It turns out that that's, that's what they're saying. And the wisdom traditions in general want us to heal. But they want us to see that some of the ways that we might try to heal could put that healing in tension with spiritual and ecological realities. We can cure all manner of ailments in violation of spiritual and ecological realities, and that won't give us the healing we seek, at least not the fullest possible healing for ourselves, for our cultures and the world that we share. And that can sound scary because we experience so much suffering. And if we think something can heal us, we don't want anyone to tell us to stop. Take some time, think. Not just check in with some abstract inner voice that we haven't learned how to differentiate from our ego, but to really stop. In order for us to heal, we need to practice compassion for ourselves, other beings, and the world. We have to come together in genuine dialogue to find out the many ways we can discover and create a real renaissance, a real rebirth in wisdom, love, and beauty, something that would help us to heal, but also help the world to heal at the same time. Now, we need to come to a close for this contemplation, but I I just want to make clear where we're at. That this seems to be this moment where we could have some kind of renaissance because of all the destruction, my goodness, all this degradation could become the space for us to be reborn. It could, we could just say, you know what, enough is enough. And, and our own, the ailment we feel in our body might be enough to, to get us to say, not just, well, I need to heal, but wait, something here is out of kilter. And we're going to try to clarify that a little bit more when we talk about holism. I think that part will make this contemplation clearer. So if you're a little bit confused and you think, my goodness, we went all over the place here, there's one central image, and that is, the, there's Plato and Socrates, and they're looking at their culture and they're seeing some problems. And one thing they see is, hey, we had these mysteries. They're profound, psychedelic experiences. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And remember, this is not a big, Athens is not huge, right? So you have a huge percentage of the population have experienced this. And yet, we still have all this injustice. We still have this lack of wisdom. They kill one of the most unique individuals of the the entire culture, who was a good person. Not just he was unique, but crazy. He was unique, but a truly dedicated person who wanted to help others to realize themselves. He didn't want to lord it over anybody. He didn't want to try to be in a position of power. He was poor his whole life, and he was just really dedicated to wisdom, love, and beauty. And they killed him. And they had tremendous art didn't save them. And now if we go sideways, a whole lot goes wrong. And here's Plato trying to figure it out. He says, you know what? We, this initiation stuff, we need that. 
the psychedelic experience, we need that. We've got to be able to manifest our own mind and see the nature of reality. We need all that, but we need to fix these limitations and the spiritual materialism. We need to get serious about what it means to walk a path of wisdom, love, and beauty. And that's the message he leaves us with. And now, let's recall that when Emperor Valentinian wanted to effectively ban the Eleusinian mysteries, this felt like the end of life for the Greeks. It was going to make life unlivable. The mysteries held the whole human race together. And really, we should say they held the whole of life together. That's what they had to do with. What holds all of life together? That's what the mysteries are about, that we need initiation into ourselves. Initiation into what holds all of life together, that would be the most important thing, in a way. The mysteries were symbolic, but that sim- symbolic nature goes beyond our habitual sense of symbolism where we sort of think, well, it's just a symbol. No. The symbolic in this sense is much more powerful and magical. And Jung once said something important about the symbolic life that bears on our contemplation. And I, it holds... I, I think we need maybe this extra piece that came to mind here to give us something to hold in our hearts. You know, we want to touch on on this deeper aspect and just hold it in our hearts until our next contemplation, which again is going to clarify more. But this is a little bit longer of a passage and I'll let you know when we get to the end. So here's what Jung said. He said, You see, human beings are in need of a symbolic life, badly in need. We only live banal, ordinary, rational or irrational things, which are naturally also within the scope of rationalism, otherwise you couldn't call them irrational. But we have no symbolic life. Where do we live symbolically? Nowhere, except where we participate in the ritual of life. But who, among the many, are really participating in the ritual of life? Very few. And when you look at the ritual life of the Protestant Church, it's almost nil. Even the Holy Communion has been rationalized. Have you got a corner somewhere in your house where you perform the rites, as you can see in India? Even the very simple houses there have at least a curtained corner where the members of the household can lead the symbolic life, where they can make their new vows or meditation. We don't have it. We have no such corner. We have our own room, of course, but there's a telephone which can ring at any time and we always have to be ready. We have no time, no place. Where have we got these dogmatic or these mysterious images? Nowhere. We have art galleries, yes, where we kill the gods by the thousands. We have robbed the churches of their mysterious images, of their magical images, and we put them into art galleries. That is worse than the killing of the 300 children in Bethlehem. It is a blasphemy. You see, we are in need of a symbolic life, badly in need. 
Only the symbolic life can express the need of the soul, the daily need of the soul, mind you. And because people have no such thing, they can never step out of this mill, this awful, grinding, banal life in which they are nothing but. In the ritual, they are near the Godhead, they are even divine. Think of the priest in the Catholic Church who is in the Godhead. He carries himself to the sacrifice on the altar. He offers himself as the sacrifice. Do we do it? Where do we know that we do it? Nowhere. Everything is banal. Everything is nothing but. And that is the reason why people are neurotic. They are simply sick of the whole thing, sick of that banal life. And therefore, they want sensation. They they even want a war. They all want a war. They are all glad when there is a war. They say, thank heaven, now something is going to happen, something bigger than ourselves. These things go pretty deep. And no wonder people get neurotic. Life is too rational. There is no symbolic existence in which I am something else, in which I am fulfilling my role, my role as one of the actors in the divine drama of life. I once had a talk with the master of ceremonies of a tribe of Pueblo Indians, and he told me something very interesting. He said, yes, we are a small tribe, and these Americans, they want to interfere with our religion. They should not do it, he said because we are the sons of the Father, the Son. He who goes there, and he pointed to the Son, that is our Father. We must help him daily to rise over the horizon and to walk over heaven. And we don't do it for ourselves only. We do it for America. We do it for the whole world. And if these Americans interfere with our religion through their missions, they will see something. In ten years... Father-son won't rise anymore because we can't help him anymore. Now, when we hear an indigenous person speaking like that, we may say, well, this is just a sort of mild madness. Not at all. These people get up in the morning with a feeling of their great and divine responsibility. They are the children of the son, the father, and their daily duty is to help the father over the horizon, not for themselves alone, but for the whole world. You should see these fellows. They have a natural, fulfilled dignity. And I quite understood when he said to me, Now look at these Americans. They are always seeking something. They are always full of unrest, always looking for something. What are they looking for? There's nothing to be looked for. And that is perfectly true. You can see them, these traveling tourists, always looking for something, always in the vain hope of finding something. On my many travels, I have found people who were on their third trip round the world uninterruptedly, just traveling, traveling, seeking, seeking. I met a woman in Central Africa who had come up alone in a car from Cape Town and wanted to go to Cairo. What for? I asked. What are you trying to do that for? And I was amazed when I looked into her eyes, the eyes of a hunted, cornered animal, seeking, seeking, always in the hope of something. 
I said, what in the world are you seeking? What are you waiting for? What are you hunting after? She's nearly possessed. She's possessed by so many devils that chase her around. And why is she possessed? Because she does not live the life that makes sense. Hers is a life utterly, grotesquely banal, utterly poor, meaningless, with no point in it at all. If she's killed today, nothing's happened. Nothing has vanished because she was nothing. But if she could say, I'm the daughter of the moon, every night I must help the moon, my mother, over the horizon, well, that's something else. Then she lives. Her life makes sense, and makes sense in all continuity and for the whole of humanity. That gives peace when people feel that they are living the symbolic life, that they are actors in the divine drama. That gives the only meaning to human life. Everything else is banal, and you can just dismiss it. A career, producing children, all that's maya compared to the one thing, that your life is meaningful. Of course, what I say is just so many words, but to the one who really lives it, it means the whole world. It means more than the whole world because it makes sense to us when we live it. It expresses the desire of the soul. It expresses the actual facts of our unconscious life. When the wise man said, nature demands death, he meant just that. Okay, that's the passage. I know it was a little long, but wow. It's still true today. And of course, a lot of people, what has elaborated from this, because the ego loves to elaborate, just, you know, like the capitalist economy just elaborates. And now when we make these trips, we, we really try to infuse them with meaning so that we feel more meaningful. We've gotten really good at repressing the sense that we're just seeking, seeking. Sometimes we suppress it, sometimes we repress it. And importantly, we can sense into the image that Jung gives us with an ecological vision not constrained by either ordinary time or literalness or pure rationality. And even Jung kind of divides up. He said, we're too rational. He means we have to be whole. It's not to say we should abandon rationality. He doesn't say that. It's just that if you become unbalanced, so you could also become too emotional. So we don't have to move from the head to the heart, but realize our wholeness. And so, symbolically speaking, life would become unlivable for the Pueblo Indians Jung met, just as life became unlivable for the Greek people when the mysteries finally did die out. The world became unlivable. The Greek world died, and in a way, our world died. That's why we need a renaissance. And our world may die now, too, if we don't have one. The sun no longer comes up as it used to. It's not the same world, you see. You might say, oh, no, but the sun still rises. Not on the world that it was. So if we think those indigenous people were crazy, thinking they had to do their ceremony to keep everything to take care of the world, well, no, because we interrupted all these ceremonies across the planet, and consequently the sun does not come up on the healthy, vital world of 500 or 1,000 years ago. Or in Europe, you'd have to go back even further in some places. The sun no longer comes up as it used to because conquest consciousness did so much to interrupt the rites, rituals, ceremonies, celebrations, and sacraments of genuine wisdom culture around the world. We could refer to it as nature culture. It's totally non-dual. 
And we can all ask what it is we think we're seeking, what we think the seeking even means. We can ask ourselves the meaning of our unwellness and the meaning of healing. What could that be? What is the meaning of healing? What is it that our culture makes virtually impossible for us to see? And can we get together in the spirit of wisdom, love, and beauty to help each other to see those invisible things? Now, in the next contemplation, we're going to try to go into wholeness. And it's going to complement this one. And believe me, I, I know that these are difficult things. We're not at all being abstract. These things are so concrete talking about how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis and what, to, what healing is an abstraction for us in which we ignore all sorts of issues and we can't be abstract anymore. Ceremonies are not abstraction. They're the direct real participation in life. That's what Jung was saying. And if we relate to them in an abstract way, which our culture encourages us to do, we're going to have difficulty. And the question is, can we really have a renaissance? Could we learn from Plato how culture-wide psychedelics, use of psychedelics, well, even if it's, that's just meditation, maybe it's DMT, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's both, but can we learn from the wisdom tradition how to make that a healthy healing situation for all of us? And it's going to get clearer and clearer as we go along, and, and by the end of this, you'll have some real actionable practices too. We've just got to do a little bit more thinking though about the context and about ethics. And we'll see why that's important as well too in the future. But in the meantime, if you have questions, reflections, stories to share about the medicines of our world and your experiences with them, do get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. And until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.